1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27. And as you turn there, let me, let me share with you um, a, a, a little anecdote. I had the privilege of being down in uh, Brazil uh, a couple of years ago, preaching at a, a conference there in Brazil. And there were some young men there who, who operate a website, a ministry there, getting the gospel out. Uh, I think it's called iProdigo in, in Brazil. And they wanted to do an interview, and so they... they sequestered me after one of the sermons, and, and we had a wonderful time talking. And, and they said, they asked me this question. They said, what would you say to young Brazilian men and women in their 20s or 30s who say they love Jesus but really could take a pass on the local church? How would you encourage them? Now, I have been asked that question I don't know how many times. And, and usually I, I think about sort of practical answers, why the church matters, sort of pragmatic reasons, or, or even some theological reasons. And, and, and sitting there in, the, in that room being interviewed and asked that question, it hit me afresh for the first time that in the first instance, the issue isn't need for a theological answer. That question isn't resolved for people with enumerating practical answers. It, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Until they love the church, they won't see the centrality of the church. That it's an affection problem. It's a problem in the heart. It's a problem with, with our loves, with our desires that, that many Christians, not just in Brazil, but, but in the United States and the UK and almost anywhere you go in the world, you'll meet this strain of Christian who says, I love Jesus, but, but I really don't, I'm not really happy with the church. I really don't need the church. I'm not impressed by the church. Why do I need to bother myself with the church? And I've come to understand and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in the heart of a person who speaks that way, there's usually a few things. Sometimes there are hurts, real deep hurts, and there are disappointments. But what's not usually there is an overflowing love for the local church. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when we're thinking about contentment with the church, let me ask you a question. Are you happy with your church? Praise God. Desert Springs is sitting over there. You, know. <laughs> you contented with your church? Think deeply about that. And, and, and let me suggest to you as a, a main thought for this sermon would be this. Contentment with the church comes from seeing God in the church. That contentment with our local assemblies, with our congregations, with the bodies of Christ to which we are members, that, that our contentment is deepened in the fellowship of God's people when we see more clearly the presence and the power and the work of God in the church. It tends to flow back into a kind of satisfaction in the soul. And I want to sort of buttress that thought with three points from this text this morning. Number one. The church is God's work. The church is God's work. Number two, God's vision for the church is glorious. He has a glorious vision for the church. And number three, there are two threats to that vision and to our contentment in the local church. Two threats. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, 
Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. The church is God's work. Each person in the Trinity plays a part in the creation of the church. Now, when you hear me say church, don't let your mind go kind of abstract. Here, Paul is addressing an actual local congregation. When you hear me say church, think about the people sitting in the room. The individual persons who have been called to Christ by faith and have been redeemed and made a part of his family. Paul is not suffering from what so many Christians suffer from today, and that is an, an over-abstraction, an over-universalizing, an over-spiritualizing of the local church. He's thinking about a concrete congregation. And the first thing to see here is we're told that the church is the body of Christ. See that there in verse 12? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Ephesians 4 tells us that, that Christ is the head of the body and all of us individually are, are joined together with him and we receive our life, as it were, from the head. And when did Christ make us his body? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us that it was when he gave his body on the tree. In his body, he was reconciling God to man and reconciling Jew and Gentile in one body that he himself has become our peace. It makes us, to change the metaphor, one new man, one new spiritual ethnicity. The church is Christ. It's his cross work. It's what he accomplishes in the cross, not just our individual salvation. Christianity is more than Moses and David, Jesus, my grandmother, and me. Christianity is all of us joined together in the body of our Lord, redeemed by his sacrifice on the cross and grafted into him as members. The church is the body of Christ. To be a Christian is a kind of outer body experience. Where in a certain sense we are now in another body. We're in Christ's body who has brought us from death to life and joined us to himself. But secondly, notice now the church is also the Holy Spirit's work. See that there in verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The spirit works on the sinner to, to give him a new heart, a, a new birth, a cleansed conscience, and to graft him and seal him into the body of Christ. It's the one Holy Spirit of God, notice there, who baptizes each one of us into the body of Christ. And interestingly enough, notice the last part of the verse. We drink of the Spirit. I don't know, but I get this image of when I was trying to learn to swim as a little boy. I had those big brothers who thought the best way to teach you everything was to make it as hard as they could. So we go to the public pool, and he takes me by the shorts and throws me out into the water and says, swim. I, you know, some teachers are better than others. You know? 
and, and I was baptized into the pool, immersed into the pool. And, and, and as I went under, something, in that case, unpleasant happened. I swallowed. Had that stinging, chlorine taste. Well, what's described here in verse 13 is something similar but much more pleasant. We are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, and, and so immersed are we that we drink in the Spirit as well. And he becomes nourishment and refreshment to us. It's the Spirit's work to graft us into Christ and also to quench our thirst. Henry Skugel's classic book, I commend to you if you've not read it, defines a Christian or being a Christian like this. It is the life of God in the soul of man. And I want to suggest to you that same life which comes by the Spirit is also the soul of the church. And what it means to be a Christian church is, is to have the life of God poured into us collectively. The church is God, the, the Son's work. It's God, the Spirit's work. But notice also, third, that the church is the Father's work. The Son dies and is atoning sacrifice for our sin. The Spirit grants us rebirth and seals us in Christ. And the Father arranges each member in the body just as he pleases. Look down in verse 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Look down in verse 24, the second part of verse 24. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. The local church is God's composition. You realize that if you are in a local church, the Father has placed his hands on you. He has placed his hands on you. Each one of us, verse 18 tells us, and, and so precisely placed us in the body just as he chose. It's no accident that you are a Christian. It's no accident that you have the particular spiritual gifts that God has given you. It's no accident that you are called to play the particular role that you're called to play in the local church. It's God's work. I wonder if you know how exquisite you are. I wonder if you know how beautiful you are. I wonder if you know how intentionally crafted and designed by the hands of the master that you are. If when you conceive of your membership in the local church, I wonder if you think of it as something divinely appointed, divinely composed, divinely orchestrated. I wonder if you realize heaven has touched you. God himself has plucked you out of the fire, saved you, sanctified you, filled you with his spirit, and prepared you with his own hands to play a vital role in the local church. The local church is an exquisite thing. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. There the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's telling us about the mystery that had been hidden, that now has been revealed to the apostles, the mystery that he preaches, that Jew and Gentile will be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he begins to meditate on the church, and he says in verse church that the, that the church, or verse 10, excuse me, it, the church is the display of the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the universe. Let me put this in an illustration. Many of us have young children or maybe grandchildren or nieces and nephews, and at some point they discover drawing. They discover crayons. And they have fun creating these, these works of art, these childhood works of art. And, and, and you know, we have a responsibility to encourage them. We 
we, we lie and, you know, we, 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 we treat them like Rembrandts and Picassos and everything they scribble is just beautiful, right? And, and they come to us and they, they bring us this thing and they, you see the sketchings and the lines and you go, oh, that's a wonderful wolf. It looks like the, the Lobos of the University of New Mexico. And, and they say, that's not a wolf, that's mommy and her birthday, you know? You say, oh, now I see it, yes, <laughs> yes, and, and, and you do what? You go, you put it on the refrigerator, and you put the magnets up, and people come over, and they go, oh, that's a great University of Lobo, that's a great Lobo, you go, shh, no, no, that's mommy on her birthday, oh, sitting around the kid, right? <laughs> when, when God hangs the picture of the church on the refrigerator door of the universe, Nobody humors him. The entire universe staggers backwards and says, wisdom, what wisdom is this? This is manifold, diverse, variegated wisdom. This is unmatched wisdom that God would take people from every people, language, nation, and tribe and make them want new humanity. Nobody pets God on the head and says, oh, now I see it. They all fall to their knees, angels and demons and the redeemed of all time, and they proclaim the majesty and wisdom and greatness of God by looking at the church. There is nothing in creation like the church where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit composed and put together to display his matchless wisdom. Oh, love her, love the church, see the beauty in the body. And notice the second thing, God's vision for the church is glorious. His plan, his call on our lives is unmatched. And in a statement, here's the vision. God's vision is that the church be completely united with every member showing equal concern for every other member. That we be completely united with every member showing equal concern for every other member. It is this co-op of love. It is this, this, this fellowship of mutual affection. Notice first that there should be a real unity to the body, even though there's diversity in it. See that in verses 12 and 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. That's what it is to be a body, to be one corpus with distinct parts. So we can talk about a writer or a university professor's body of work. And what we're referring to perhaps is his collection of articles and books and things of that sort. And if he's like Rick Phillips, he writes a book every week, you know. <laughs> or we think of an artist and their body of work. The sculptures, the poems, the various pieces that make up the whole of their labors. And, and that's what it means to be a body, that we are diverse and different. We, we have different parts, and yet we're one. There's a unity in a diversity. And this thing goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul begins to address the divisions in the Corinthian church. And he asks this powerful rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Absolutely not. Christ is one, and so is his body. There's to be this deep unity, and that's precisely part of why God arranges the body the way he does. Look again at verse 24. See there, as Paul writes, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Verse 25, here's the purpose statement. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If I would ask you the question, what's the opposite of division? Most of us would say unity, right? And that, that is a good and appropriate answer. But notice now how Paul reaches for a more specific statement. He doesn't say so there'd be no division, but unity. He says something far more precise. He says so that its members 
should have equal concern for each other. That's how he operationalizes. That's how he defines and, and, and applies the notion of unity. The church is to be a place where, where our fellowship means that each member has a, an equal, corresponding, full concern for every other member. And that's why God has arranged us the way he has and given us the gifts that he has. So if in our churches we want to destroy cliques, if we want to end petty group squabbles, if in our congregations we want to end ethnic and cultural prejudice, if we want to tear down class divisions, or if we want to grow in holiness and joy, if, if in our churches we want to be sure no one is left out, ignored, or lonely, if we, we want to be sure that everyone has their needs met, the vision, the formula that God gives us here is that we would show equal concern each for the other. So we're not to let our love and our compassion and our hopes for others be limited to some subsection of the church. We don't want our love to be partial and preferential and prejudicial. We want each member to show equal concern, equal concern for every other member. There's a variety of Christian, and maybe this is you, you've thought this way. And you said, you know what, churches. My church is my friends, and the people I hang out with, I follow a woman on Twitter feed. She lives in, in San Diego. This morning, she tweeted uh, and attached an Instagram photo. And the tweet said, um, my, ch my pew for Sunday morning. And the Instagram photo was a, a, a picture of a lifeguard chair at the beach. She worships at the beach. That's her church. That's who she gathers with people that she has things in common with, that she likes to hang out with. You know, people say sometimes, you know, I can have church at home with, with my family or I can have church at the coffee shop with my friends and, and so on and so forth. And there's an element where you go, yeah, fellowship can happen anywhere. Spiritual encouragement can happen anywhere. It can happen in the aisle in the grocery store and you bump into someone. I love the way one writer puts this. If our fellowship and our love is really confined, to people like us, that may be little more than self-love spread over a slightly wider area. Biblical love crosses boundaries. Notice it includes Jew and Greek, slave and free. It, it, it crosses class divisions. It crosses all the natural things that alienate people in this fallen world. In the body of Christ, God has done something miraculous. He has, he has conquered all those divisions, and he has called us to show equal concern for each other. What does that look like? Well, how many of you have gotten that dreaded phone call at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning? You're lying there peacefully asleep. The phone rings and you roll over and you see what time it is and, and all of a sudden your heart's filled with a, a quickening, an urgency. You, you sit up. You know this is not a, a normal phone call. Something must be up if I'm being called at 2 or 3 in the morning. And you pick up the phone and on the other end is a close friend or a family member and they relay to you some devastating news. Maybe news like a car accident, a sick loved one. And what do you do when you get that phone call? You spring out of the bed. Almost in one motion, you throw on clothes and begin to brush your teeth and uh, take the rollers out of your hair or whatever it is. And, and, and with bedroom slippers, you, you're rushing to the door and you're sticking your feet into your shoes and you get to the car and you, you drive to the hospital and you, you gather with the rest of the family and friends and, and you begin to pray together and maybe mourn together. You, you, you express love like that. Now imagine you get a phone call it's a brother or sister in the church. And they say, hey, I'm calling to let you know that, that, that brother Aaron has been in a car accident and he's in serious condition. Right? You, you have known Aaron. You've heard of Aaron. Maybe you've served together with him on the sound team or something. But, but you're not really close with Aaron. And, and you get the phone call. And, and, and what do you say? You say something like this probably. I'll, I'll be sure to pray for Aaron. And you hang up the phone. And maybe you send up a popcorn prayer. Or maybe you pray, or maybe you just keep doing what you were doing. 
And maybe you remember to pray a day or two later. What this calls us to is to raise the affection we have for Aaron up to the level of care and concern we would have for family. For that's what we are. We're the family of God. And, and, and the concern that we have for each other isn't to be limited to our small groups or limited to our, our ministry teams, but it is, to, it is to steadily work its way out and spread its way out and, and, and to be raised, not, not Lord. We could all sort of treat everybody the way we treat Aaron and say, I love everybody equally. But, but no, we want to raise the, the level of our love. Until, the, until our church families become the kind of places where no one could testify ever again, I was hurting or in need or suffering, and no one called me, no one reached out to me, no one helped me. You ever heard that kind of testimony? We have equal love for each other. We dry up that kind of isolation. And we gather in, just as Christ has gathered us, every member of the body. We, we draw them close and we, we, we express our connectedness to them. And we, we raise the level of our concern day by day, week by week, by God's grace and the power of his spirit, which we drink in the body of Christ. And notice there how this works in the body. There's a kind of system that goes on here. See it in verses 26 and 20, 25. So 25, Paul tells us there about how God has arranged us in the body. So we share this equal concern for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. But there's a kind of, just in our physical body, where we have a kind of ner central nervous system. There's a kind of central nervous system in the local church. What we're in communicated to other parts of the body are pain that exists in another part of the body. How many of you have ever gotten up in the middle of the night, tried to go to the bathroom, and the lights are out, you kind of half sleep still, and you kick your little toe on the corner of your dresser? What happens? The whole body does this, doesn't it? The whole body says, we feel you, we know. <laughs> and it cringes to protect that one little part. And so it is with the body of Christ. A, a brother or sister is hurting in some way, in, in some reflexive, spiritual, loving way. The body cringes with it. Or if a, a part is honored, if a part is celebrated, if a part does well, the whole body shares in that and rejoices in that and, and praises God together for that. It's a kind of central nervous system that, that communicates all through the body. So that the body in rich and deep empathy responds together. God's vision for the church is that we be completely united and that we have equal care, the same care, each member for the other. Here's the question. Is that your vision? Is that what you and I want in our local churches? Have we yet imagined something so beautiful could be possible in our congregations? And, and have, have we thought about that and longed for that long enough that we would say, here am I, Lord. Use me. You've placed me in this body intentionally. You placed your hand on me and gave me this particular gift, Lord. Here I am. I see that vision. Use me. Let me serve the body in such a way that every member grows in its love for the whole and for every other part and that your glory is seen in the unity of your people. I, I pray that's your burden. I pray that's your heart because there are two threats to that vision. That there are two things that, that lead us to be dissatisfied with our church experience in this text. Discontent. And two things that threaten to, to overthrow this. Notice here that, that Paul gives us those threats in verses 15 and 16 and verse 21. Verses 15 and 16 say this. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. That's the problem of feeling inferior and insignificant. I'm not 
the prominent part. I'm not the upfront part. I'm not the really buff music guy. So I'm really not needed to the body. Inferiority and insignificance. Don't, don't raise your hands, but, but think to yourself, have you ever thought thoughts like this? I, I can't preach the way Pastor Ryan preaches. I'm not a gifted administrator the way, the way Pastor Trent is. You know, I, I, don't, I don't sing the way some of the other folks sing. I, there's not much I can give to the body. I find that that's a common way of thinking among Christians. Now, the, the other problem, the other threat is its opposite. Notice in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That's the feeling of superiority and self-sufficiency. These are the folks who think the sun doesn't rise until their feet hit the bedroom floor, right? These are the folks who come to the church and, and, and they, they, you know, they tell you they're humble, but they feel like the church can't operate if they're not there. This church would be nothing if I wasn't a member. Ah, man, that's a, that's a foul attitude, that feeling of superiority. And self-sufficiency. I don't need you. I'm all together by myself. I'm a, you know, I'm all that in a bag of chips, you know. Aren't you really lucky to be sitting next to me in church this morning? Just the glory radiating off me and over onto you. That guy goes to our churches too, doesn't he? They were there in Corinth, and they're, they're likely among us. And, and Paul writes to address them uh, in, in three ways to say three things to these people who really divide and weaken the body, who destroy the fellowship and the witness of the church. He says three things to them. Number one, he says, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your conclusions are errors. To so think that you're unnecessary or unimportant just because you think that doesn't make it so. That's what Paul says there in verses 15 and 16. Doesn't make it so because you think that. You're, you're wrong. And to the people who think they're self-sufficient and superior, he says in verse 22, notice how he says, how it begins there in the, in, in the NLV. He says, on the contrary. On the contrary. That's a very polite way of saying, man, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're wrong. And beloved, let me just make this aside right here. Sometimes the, the most loving thing your pastor will ever do in your life is to gently and humbly but clearly say to you, you're wrong. We don't like to hear that, do we? We love our thoughts. They're our, they're our thoughts. They're our pets. And, and we get accustomed to listening to ourselves and, and thinking we pretty much have things figured out, especially if I've gotten to the point where I'm going to say it out loud. I'm pretty sure I'm right. One of the most wonderful gifts of grace we'll ever get is for someone to lovingly say, Beloved, you're wrong. Stop thinking that way. And one of the most remarkable uh, acts of God's grace to us is if we listen in such cases and we receive counsel and are instructed by it. And that's what Paul is doing right here. He's just saying, Stop. You're wrong. But then he goes on to say a second thing. Every part is necessary for the body to be the body. And, in, and every part is really dependent upon other parts in order to be the body. He says, you who are feeling unnecessary in verse 17 and who want to abandon your part in the body, you'll destroy the body if you do that. You know, where is the body if the whole thing is an eye? I mean, get a picture of that, just one big eye rolling down the street. You know, where's the body? Where's the sense of smell if, he, if the nose isn't necessary? No, 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 no. In this diversity, God has strategically placed all that the church needs in order to be a body. You are critical to the work of the church. I mean, without you, there is no body. And then he turns in verses 22 and 23, and he addresses the independent and the self-sufficient. And he uses this phrase. He said, there are some parts that seem to be weak. But actually, they are indispensable, and you are dependent on them. 
You think they're less honorable, but actually they deserve more honor and special treatment. He talks there, uses this analogy, analogy of the unpresentable parts. You all know what we do with our unpresentable parts. We're getting dressed in the morning. We cover them, sometimes from ourselves in the mirror. I'm, I'm experiencing what my mother calls the middle-aged spread, right? And I could do something about it, but I just prefer to cover it. You know, just... Honor it, you know, give it more honor, you know. <laughs> Dress it up really nice, you know. That's what we do with our, our, our dishonorable or our vulnerable or our intimate parts. We show their value and show their necessity by adorning them, by clothing them, by covering them, by protecting them. And so it is with the strong and the weak in the body. Every part is indispensable. Every part is needed. And the weaker parts receive more honor, not less. Now, this is as countercultural as it gets. Because we live in a world that say the strong survive and the weaker to be crushed. But God has created this countercultural community where the weak are actually honored, where they're exalted where they are cared for and protected. And that's what strength is meant to be used for, the caring of the, of the weak. So Paul says in Romans chapter 14, you who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And beloved, how many of us, if, you, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that there's going to be a season where you're the strong and there are going to be seasons where you're the weak. And, and you don't want to be forgotten in that season of weakness. You want those who are strong to care for you protect you. And that's what Paul says here. He says, listen, number one, you're wrong. Number two, every part is necessary. And number three, I love this. He says, basically, if you say that, that you're not a part of the body or you don't need the body, what you're really saying is, God, you blew it. You blew it. This thing you put together in the church that you put together with your own hands, you, you don't know what you're doing. I should have been something else. I should have been another part, or I should have been in another church, or I don't really need these people. Why do you saddle me with these people? Do you, I mean, hear what that attitude implies about the nature of God's work in the church. You're saying, God, you don't, you don't know what you're doing. You missed it. Quite frankly, I could have done a better job. That's the attitude of pride that's really coming out in that way. When we say, I don't matter, or I don't need others. Those are threats to the beauty and the glory and the unity of the body of Christ. Those are attitudes that tear the church apart limb by limb, part by part. And obviously, if we're Christians, we don't want to think this way even unintentionally. We, we, we cry out as we were singing in that song, Lord, draw, convict. Convict me, Lord. And you know that's grace, right? When the Lord taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I'm talking to you now. When, when this giant finger comes over the pulpit and pokes you in the chest, it's a big finger, but it's a loving finger getting your attention and saying, hey, here, this is for you. The preacher doesn't do that. The spirit does that. And that conviction is kindness from God. It is grace from God. That's why I loved us singing, asking for that. And so we don't want to think that way. We don't want to be opposed to God's vision for the church. We don't even want to imply that God has gotten it wrong. Because the glory of God and the wisdom of God is manifest in the church. We want to love this thing that God has done and included us in with a deep affection. We want to see each person of the Trinity at work. And because we love God, we want to love his work too. We want to love his bride. We want to love his composition. And we want to act in ways that strengthen the church. And we want to act in ways that reveal our contentment in what God has done with our lives. Him writer said he's making something beautiful. So let me give you several applications as we close here. Number one, all of this means that membership in the local church 
actual self-conscious committed membership where you um, um, identify yourself as a part of and you identify your commitment to a local congregation and that congregation um, self-consciously welcomes you as a part of that body and, and communicates its commitment to care for you as an individual. Local church membership is a biblical idea and really an implicit requirement of the Christian life. So I think if you're here and you're Christian and you're not a member of a local church, you're living beneath your inheritance. You're robbing yourself of some of the sweetest joys and blessings that God has for you. If you're a member of the body, where are you supposed to be? Attached to and known as a part of the body, right? I mean, just in the same way that bricks are in this building or a part of this building cemented together with this building. We don't see bricks waddling across the parking lot saying, well, you know, I'm done with the building today. (laughs) They remain attached and glued in and fixed in, don't they? And so it is with members of the body of Christ. And let me say this, beloved, membership, that's our word. That's a Christian word. We're not borrowing that word from the Rotary Club or some local country club. We don't have that as our model. We have something in mind that is distinctively Christological. We are the body of Christ. And and, and that member word, that part word, comes from that imagery. We're not trying to mimic or ape what's going on in the world. We're trying to live out what's on the pages of the Bible. This is our concept, and we need to dust it off breathe new life into it, really embrace it afresh for the privilege that it is that we get to be members of the body of Christ. That's wonderful. Let me give you a second application. We must also then think biblically about leaving a church. Feelings of insignificance are not sufficient in and of themselves to leave a church. Feelings of superiority and self-sufficiency are not grounds for joining or leaving a church. In reality, both of those ways of thinking are false ways of thinking. Significance and contentment is only found by playing your part and recognizing your dependence. You want to be content with your local church? Get involved. Play a meaningful, loving part in the flourishing of the body of Christ. And recognize as you do so that you're actually depending also on the other parts of the body. You'll find that you'll have a higher level of tolerance for any blemishes in the church. You'll complain less and grumble less. You'll find your heart quieted with the imperfections. And you'll find that your eye will be, your eye will be fixed on what, what God's eyes are, are fixed on. Fixed on that day in Ephesians 3.10. And fixed on that day in Revelation 21 where the bride will be seen in all of her splendor. And you'll rejoice that you'll be a part of that bride. So think biblically about leaving the church. Let me put it a different way. Go ahead and establish in your heart that you will... Only leave a local church where the gospel is falsified or not preached, where there is some obvious sinful disorder in the, in the leadership of that church. But apart from that, you're going to commit to making it very, very hard to ever walk out on the love of the family of God. Rather, you would choose to endure to whatever extent possible. I'll give you a third application. If we're the body of Christ and every part's necessary, let's play a part in rounding up those discouraged and disconnected members. Jesus tells the parable of leaving the 99 sheep to go and find the one. That's certainly a pastoral responsibility, but it's also a brotherly responsibility, a sisterly responsibility. Let's own that. You know that there's a brother or sister that that you know fairly well or we're getting to know and now you haven't seen them for two weeks or three weeks? Send the email. Pick up the phone. Tweet. Whatever. Drive by their house. Say, brother, we love you. We miss you. Where you've been? What's going on? How can we care for you? 
Sister, we, we want you to be actively involved in the life of the church. Will you, will you return? Do that. Make that a part of your conspiracy together as a church to make sure that no one drops out of the fellowship. Let me give you a fourth one. Cultivate a love and a concern for members who are not like you. Don't limit your fellowship to the same demographic and the same interests and all that good stuff. You know, don't, don't just hang out with the cabriolet driving, latte sipping, skinny jean wearing uh, crew, right? <laughs> hang out with some guys with the pickup truck who drink, you know, well, who drink beer maybe. I don't know, you know. <laughs> Not too much. <laughs> right? I had to say that because there's a Presbyterian in the room, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, this would be a good time for me to say how much I have enjoyed sharing the ministry with you, brother. <laughs> it's been a real treat. It's been a real treat. The brother drives a tank, so I need to be careful. Um, yeah, cross-cultural and economic lines, cross-class lines. So those of you who are, who are business owners or lawyers or doctors, have over to your home for dinner. Um, that brother or sister who works with the sanitation department, you know, that, that brother or sister who has some entry-level retail clerk job. And, and don't let that just go one way, as if only the wealthy can really be hospitable. You know, those of you who have entry-level jobs, who, who feel like you have not much to put on the table, that really is the sweetest and most meaningful fellowship. I think of the times I've gone to the continent of Africa, for example, in rural Zambia, and the last trip there, our, our, our hostess wanted very much to make us an American meal. I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And we go to the house after church, and, and she has killed a chicken and fried a chicken. I said, she must have knew I was Baptist. You know? <laughs> she's, done, she's done her best at um, um, mashed potatoes and other things. And it was wonderful. And it was about all they had. Such a blessing. So cross lines, cross, cross ethnic lines. So, so make sure that if you're a Hispanic member that you, you know Native American members. If you're a Native American member, you're, you're fellowshipping with, with white American members. Make sure you're crossing those cultural lines and class lines. And, and because in all of that, we're reflecting a unity that the world desperately longs for and can never manufacture. It's the unity accomplished by Christ on the cross. So cross lines for the glory of God and the unity of the church. Number five, actively live in a way that makes it clear that you depend on others, that you need others. That can mean a thousand things. Let me just give you one. Let people know when you're hurting. Lots of people in my church, I I find out three days later that they've been in the hospital. So why, why don't you tell me? They say something like this, well, you, you're busy, you got all those other people who are in need. Man, you about died. You had a heart attack. You had a massive heart attack. You needed prayer, brother. Don't you think you needed prayer? You know, and, and, and there's a sense in which we over-privatize our lives, particularly when we feel vulnerable and when we're made to feel needy. There, there's some of us who, who just don't like to need other people. But God has made us to need other people. And in humility, if you make that known, you'll find that that dependence or interdependence is actually strength, a stronger strength than what you're gritting your teeth and muscling up to do by yourself. So live in a way that makes dependence really clear. And number six, and finally, use your gifts for the good of the whole body. That's what Paul is addressing throughout this chapter and, and through the next two chapters. In love, use what God has given you for the common good, for the building up of the whole body. You know, if you can swing a hammer, swing a hammer. You know, if you can pray, pray. You have gifts of administration and, and organization, use them diligently for the building up of God's body. 
And you'll discover that as you play your part, as you cross lines to love others, as you seek after those who have, who have been wandering away from the fold, uh, as you live out this vision of, of equal care for one another, you will find that your contentment is deepened in the church. You'll find that you won't have reason to complain or to grumble. You won't be offended so easily. When we relinquish our passive approach to spiritual fellowship, we'll find ourselves grabbing not only our brother and sister, but in grabbing them, grabbing Christ more tightly as well. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian And you're saying, I want to belong to a body like that. I want to be in a community where people love each other this way. And I I feel insignificant. Or or maybe you feel the opposite way. Maybe you feel fairly sufficient. Can I say to you that the cross of Jesus Christ speaks to you two words. Speaks to you the word repent. Repent of ever thinking that a person made in God's image could ever be insignificant. And repent from ever thinking that a person who has distorted that image in sin could ever be self-sufficient. Repent of thinking that you're either not worthy of the cross or you don't need the cross. We all do. On that cross hung the Son of God to gather to himself people who were broken in their sin, who were in fact rebelling against God, whose thinking was wrong and carrying them in the wrong direction. And so he speaks to us from that cross, repent of those things that made the cross necessary, your sin and my sin. And he says to us a second word, trust. Trust. Trust God the Son who gave himself as a ransom for your sin who in doing so paid the penalty that you owe for your sin. You and I should have been nailed to that cross. Worse, you and I should spend eternity in hell for our sins against an infinite holy God. But we can trust that Jesus has turned away God's anger against our sin, that Jesus has turned away God's wrath, and that Jesus, who lived a perfectly life, who, uh, life who never sinned, that his righteousness will be our righteousness if we believe in him, if we trust in his promise, that if we followed him in the obedience that comes from faith, that we would inherit eternal life, that our sins would be removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and we would enjoy glory with him in God's eternal kingdom. Whereas we heard in the first service, there are pleasures forevermore. That's the offer God makes to you this morning. Beloved, if God makes you a free offer like that, don't resist it. Accept it. Repent. Believe. Be saved. Become a part of the body of Christ and know the contentment that comes from God alone and being in his family. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that what you have done in the local church is more glorious than we can imagine. We confess that the beauty of the church, Lord, we have yet to see in its full. And so we ask that you would help us, O Lord, to love what you love, to see the church the way you see her, to marvel that the church is your handiwork and to marvel even more that if we have come to faith in Christ, we have been placed in the body of Christ. And grant, O Lord, that we should be happy, that we should be deeply content at your ongoing, progressing work in the life of your church. Make us fearful for ever missing out on even a second of your grace poured into your church. And make us joyful that you have given us yourself and brothers and sisters a hundredfold with whom we will rejoice forever in the presence of your glory. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.